President, Your Excellencies, colleagues, members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure for me and an honour for me to deliver this discourse this evening on Ireland's decisive choice for Europe. It's particularly fitting in that on the 10th of November 1975, as a 20-year-old undergraduate student who was actually embarking on an undergraduate dissertation on the impact of EEC on Irish foreign policy, I listened to an address in this place, in this room, from the then Minister for Foreign Affairs, Dr. Garrett Fitzgerald. And I remember sitting there, I was right at the back, I had asked to, uh, I had asked specially, could I go to this lecture? Uh, and I remember thinking that as uh, Garrett spoke that evening on Irish foreign policy in the context of the EU, and his his address was very, uh, he was looking forward to uh, an Ireland as an EU member state. He had just completed the presidency of the EU, Ireland's first presidency. And I remember thinking my dissertation was being written as I listened that evening. And in fact, afterwards, as a cheeky undergraduate, I went up to Garrett in the, at the reception outside and said I was doing this very important work and could I interview him for my research. And it remains my first qualitative research uh, interview that I ever did. So for that reason, 44 years later, uh, it is a pleasure and an honour to be here this evening uh, to talk about Ireland's decisive choice for Europe. Uh, and in that uh, decisive choice for Europe, uh, I would like to make just four contextual um, conclusions about our experience of membership. Firstly, that membership of the EU was the settled will of the Irish people. That given the size of the yes vote in the referendum in 1972, 83%, Ireland's, the Irish electorate was supportive of membership. And we've had more referendums on EU issues than any other member state, the electorates of any other member state in the EU. And as we know, we have usually uh, accepted the proposition put to us uh, and on occasion, we've even gone back to think about it a second time. Uh, the Red Sea poll this year shows that 93% uh, of those surveyed think membership of the EU is a good thing. In my view, that's wildly exaggerated. Uh, that is an artifact of Brexit. I would always have thought that Irish public opinion is somewhere 60-40 at least a third of the electorate is available at any one time to vote against a European proposition. But the Brexit effect has had a dramatic impact. The second uh, is that membership provided Ireland with a geopolitical and geoeconomic anchor and shelter in the world. And it allowed us navigate three crucial relationships, our relationship with the United Kingdom, our relationship with the rest of Europe, and our relationship with the United States. In other words, those three circles of relationships. And in the 2000s, that was expanded as globalization accelerated to also include an Asia strategy. And that very benign geopolitical, geoeconomic environment allowed Ireland transform itself from a poor dependent state into one of the most globalized economies and societies in the world. Third, what's Ireland's contribution to the EU? 
Garrett once said that Helmut Schmidt asked him, uh, what did Ireland bring to the EU? And I think there is an answer to that question, and it's a very significant one. And that is that this small peripheral poor state made a success of membership. And that's not should not be taken as given. EU membership offers opportunities and constraints, but it is not a panacea for the problems or ills of any country. So Ireland to this day remains the only poor peripheral economy that has converged with the income levels of the core. Fourthly, Ireland's state elite, both political actors and officials, were largely comfortable with the multi-level governance and politics of the EU. They had an acute awareness of the limits of small state power. They had an acute, uh, ob uh, an acute understanding of how to play that limited power. And we rely on nodes of expertise across our governmental system and state agencies. But I would also argue that Ireland was weakly uh, Europeanized, and it took a very long time for our parliament uh, to pay any attention uh, to the EU. We've had one traumatic experience of membership, and that is when we exchanged interdependence in the EU for dependence on the EU. In other words, that period of the Troika, where Ireland, uh, and it was largely driven by a lack of fit between our domestic policies and the world beyond. And now we face, uh, as we faced the third uh, decade of the 21st century, uh, we face a far more turbulent world and a far more turbulent neighborhood. And I will, talk, uh, I will talk about those. But I do want at the beginning to also acknowledge the fact that, and this was something that Garrett said on that evening in 1975, that EU membership offered the prospect of eliminating the psychological hang-ups that were an inevitable feature of the highly polarized bilateral relationship which had previously existed between Ireland and Britain, and that the promise of membership in that sense has clearly uh, been paid. It, we do have uh, a much more balanced relationship uh, with the United Kingdom than we would have uh, with without EU membership. But of course, Brexit uh, is a form of rupture, and I will talk about that later. The discourse this evening is in two parts. I want to begin with the shifts in global geopolitics and in Ireland's neighborhood, because that's the context in which the EU will evolve and the context in which Ireland's relationship, membership of the EU and relationship with the world will evolve. And then secondly, I will turn attention to four areas that I think as a country we need to deliberate on, we need to pay attention to. Firstly, public policy and our model of political economy. Secondly, our external projection and coalition building. Thirdly, the future of the EU itself. And fourthly, how we manage uh, Europe from home. So firstly, geopolitics. There's no doubt that we live in a world of very significant geopolitical shift and shock. And I would start with China because the most pronounced change in global politics over the last 40 years is the rise of China. 
It has been transformed from a poor, peripheral, inward-looking rural society into a political and economic powerhouse. And it has done so in a way that has not followed models of the West, either the United States or Europe or Japan. It's been driven by uh, the Chinese Communist Party and an extraordinarily strong state apparatus. At the beginning, the twin goals were growth and global access. But with increasing economic power, China has begun to assert its vision of a plural world and has begun to project the Chinese way of doing things beyond its own border. And we see in China today with Xi Jinping that he has concentrated power uh, much more in a much more centralized way than was the normal triumvirate of leadership within the Chinese system. So it's in a period of, uh, of even more centralization. There are many competing perspectives of just what kind of power China is or will become. But there's no doubt that in addition to being a formidable trading state, its military capacity is growing at a rapid pace. It is, insert, it is asserting that, for example, in the South China Sea. And it's strengthening its presence, has strengthened its presence in Africa and Eurasia in a bid to secure raw materials and trading routes. It is the dominant power in Asia today. And as we know, there is increasing competition between China and the United States. Interestingly, the EU has responded to this and I think has hardened it to a certain extent its attitude towards China. What do I mean by that? In March 19 this year, EU-China's strategic outline, uh, outlook paper, the Commission adopted a stance that was both cooperative with China, but also an emphasis on, and I read, a more balanced reciprocal conditions governing the economic relationship. That emphasis on balance and on reciprocity. And I think we will see over the next five years the EU using whatever instruments it has in that relationship uh, with China. Of course, uh, the arrival of US economic nationalism uh, under President Obama the United States engaged in a very soft containment policy of China with the TPP. But all of that has shifted under Trump. Uh, we see now an America that is sovereigntist, an America that wants to reform the liberal international order. I'm not sure reform is quite the word I would use. Uh, and it wants to exert its sovereignty in an America first dynamic. The first thing Trump did when he became uh, president was to sign away on TPP. And as we know, he's adopted a much more confrontational attitude towards China. Uh, also, uh, that uh, he has also uh, decided that the United States will no longer be the guardian of the multilateral uh, trading system. He's refusing to appoint uh, judges to the WTO appellate system. And we face a cliff edge in December of this year, where the actual compliance system of the WTO may cease to function. And we've never had in the White House a president that is more anti the EU than President Trump. Now, there are those who argue that some of that comes from the fact that under the Habitats Directive, he wasn't allowed to build walls around his hotel in uh, Clare, because there's some valued snail that couldn't be disturbed. But regardless, 
it really doesn't matter. Trump does not have the interests of the EU at heart. It's no longer a supportive power. And there is the prospect uh, of a EU, uh, US trade, uh, a, an EU-US trade war, despite the fact that a lot has been done, I know, to try to make sure that doesn't happen. And then thirdly, there is Russia as a disruptor state. Russia hurt from the collapse of communism. It hurt from the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Vladimir Putin, in this manifestation, wants to rebuild Russian power and presence in the world by becoming a disruptive state and is willing to use its military power. Uh, we saw, we've seen the proxy war in Ukraine and also the support for the Assad regime in Syria. And that, uh, that Russia is also a Russia that there's a long continuity between the special ops that the KGB used to engage in and now the disruption uh, with cyber uh, and interference in elections and things that you see. So Russia is a disruptor state. It's in, it, it is a neighboring state of the EU on the continent. It is also uh, very close to some of the member states of the EU. So either the Kremlin playbook will change over time or we will ha continue to have a disruptive uh, Putin or a disruptive Russia on the borders of the EU. Uh, there's no evidence that Russia, that Putin intends to engage either in to focus on his own economy or uh, to become uh, or to allow for political liberalization in Russia. And then all of that takes place against the fundamental transformative backdrop of climate change and technological transformation. For the first time in human history, humanity is capable of destroying the planet and transforming what it is to be human with the development of AI, bioengineering, and all of the disruptive technologies that are part of the world we live in. And we know from history that all communications revolutions brought profound change in politics and profound change to uh, political economy. And therefore, uh, one, we do live at a time of accelerated, uh, at accelerated change. So this world of order disorder that we're facing is very challenging to the EU and by definition to Ireland as well. The global order is under attack. It's, we know what the problems are. We know what the demand for global governance is. The challenge in the world today is to, be, to supply global governance. Uh, and the world has become more multipolar at the same time as multilateralism and global governance is under threat. And Europe always, its view of the world was normative power Europe, that the world would be a wonderful place if it was more like Europe. Well, I'm afraid Europe has faced in the last, uh, not quite decade, but five to six years, geopolitical shocks. And that world is not going to change. Uh, and I'm very struck by the fact that Commission President-designate Ursula von der Leyen when she nominated her commission, uh, she uh, argued that her commission was a geopolitical commission. Now, interestingly, Juncker framed his commission as the political commission. She's framing her commission as the geopolitical commission. And I think that's a deep, deep recognition, not just in Brussels, but in the capitals across Europe, that uh, the big challenge for Europe is to deal not just with the world within, 
but the world uh, the world beyond in other words europe has to wake up from its geostrategic slumber and if that wasn't enough ireland's neighborhood or i should say these islands have also become extraordinarily unsettled uh, over the last uh, since 2016 and this has forced ireland out of its comfort zone because traditionally ireland played the world by coalescing with uh, coalescing with like-minded states focusing very carefully on ireland's core interests but never quite being out in front it's not something that either irish politics or irish diplomacy is that comfortable with but brexit has forced ireland out of its comfort zone why because it's existential for the state and for its economy and for its polity and the first task was of course to ensure that ireland's partners understood and appreciated the seriousness of brexit for the island of ireland and this uh, was done very effectively in the uh, first phase of the brexit from june uh, june 16 to uh, april 17. during this time uh, once the British sent their, by the time the uh, Prime Minister May had sent her letter of notification saying that the uh, UK were about to leave the EU, then Ireland's heavy diplomacy between June 16 and 17, uh, April 17 paid dividends because Ireland, as we know, was one of the three issues that had to be dealt with and addressed in the first phase of these negotiations and that culminated as we know in a protocol on ireland northern ireland and a withdrawal deal the problem is and the challenge is that that withdrawal deal was incapable of passing uh, the house of commons because british politics there was a majority in favor of leaving the eu but no one knew what that meant and there was no domestic accommodation in the united kingdom whatsoever on any kind of Brexit. And that's been a huge problem. It's very difficult for the EU27 to deal with a country that is so riven on this, uh, on this issue. And so, and I think rightly, when, uh, when Boris Johnson became prime minister, there was an openness in Dublin to look again at the condition, at, at how a deal might be, uh, how a deal could be arrived at. Uh, and I think the Irish Taoiseach took risks. Uh, there are risks in the consent mechanism, but those risks were probably wise because a no-deal Brexit would be extraordinarily costly to this country. And we have no idea where a no-deal Brexit would lead the United Kingdom. We have no idea what it would actually mean uh, over two to three to six months to a, uh, to a year. Of course, what Brexit has done is it's put Irish unity back on the political agenda, and it's not going away in my view. Uh, this society, this island, the societies north and south, uh, have got to confront what this will mean to the state, to our politics, to our constitution, to our political economy, and to our identity. It is fundamental and the one big lesson that we must learn from brexit 
is that you can't embark on major constitutional change without deliberation. There must be calmness. It must take time. Uh, there's got to be a lot of discussion. And I'm not saying that unification is the end game, but I think it's a discussion that won't go away. And we must remember that process matters as much as outcomes. I have no doubt that Ireland has the state capacity and the political maturity to address this as a society, but we have to do it with our eyes open. Uh, we can't do it, there, it is, can't be a winner, it can't be a them and us and a winner takes all. Uh, so I think for Ireland facing into the next phase, and now I turn to our future within the EU, uh, for Ireland, the EU without the United Kingdom will be a very different EU. We will lose our near English-speaking neighbour, a like-minded country on many issues of political economy. But we need to also remember that we can assist the UK in its post-Brexit world, provided that the United Kingdom does not damage Irish prosperity or stability. And so the decisive choice Ireland made for Europe in 1972 is almost copper fastened by Brexit because the British relationship will be different. The United States is a less stable anchor in the world and therefore Ireland's essential anchor and essential shelter facing this turbulent world is the EU. It's, you know, the Tina, there is no alternative. Well, there is no alternative. Uh, going alone, if the United Kingdom is, it's, an, it, it's a living experiment of what happens when you try to untie the ties of deep interdependence. It's not an easy thing to do. And uh, we, we see uh, that Brexit as an ideal is one thing, but Brexit as a reality is quite another. So I think in terms of the uh, Ireland's relationships, if I had given this lecture prior to 19 or to 2016, this would be a one single pyramid. But you can see the, the weakening, the opening out of the relationships. And therefore, that core relationship now is Ireland's membership of and engagement with the EU. I have spent a lot of time on the shifts and shocks of global politics, and I've done so because, again, we're a small, highly globalized society, but perhaps we don't pay enough attention to the bigger global trends. So then to turn and look at Ireland's future in the EU. If we, we need, I think, to also understand what has happened to the EU over the last 10 years. The EU up to 2009, and remember it ended with, Liz, uh, with Lisbon, had a very intensive period of treaty change from the mid 80s to the end of the 2000s. Lots of treaties, lots of change, integration through law. For the last 10 years, the EU has evolved through crises. It has evolved through the Euro crisis, through the migration crisis, and now through Brexit. And that those crises have changed the nature of what the EU is. And how would I, how would I 
how would I sum up what those changes are? I think the crises have hardened the EU. It's become a more political animal. Integration by law continues to be important, but integration through politics is as important, if not more important today. It is also an EU that faced with existential threats to some of its major regimes had to dig deep, had to establish all sorts of new policy instruments, and it did so. And it's a union that has become not just, uh, it continues to be normative in terms of the values that are shared across the member states, although uh, we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is a major rule of law crisis in the EU on the eastern half of the continent. But I would describe the EU as it approaches the third decade of the 21st century as a political union in the sense, and I don't mean political and in the federal sense, but politics matter much more. This is a much less, it's a knowledge institution still, technocracy and expertise still matters, but politics matters. And in my view, the uh, biggest challenge the EU faces in the next cycle is how to strengthen its capacity to be strategic. And I don't mean strategic in, a, in an international relations sense. I mean strategic about everything that it does in terms of uh, the future of the continent. And so how it can strengthen its strategic capacity, and that also implies how it may have to strengthen its central capacity, but I'll come back to that. So Ireland approaches its 50th anniversary of EU membership as a small, successful member state. The promise that Garrett Fitzgerald uh, outlined in November 1975 in this room uh, has been delivered on. But following Brexit, Ireland faces uh, it faces a different union and a different membership. And so what I think is really important for us to grapple with is what kind of EU will evolve in the third decade of the 21st century and how comfortable will Ireland be? How can Ireland shape that, but also how comfortable will Ireland be with that evolving EU? Uh, and there's a lot of contingency. There's a lot of contingency in the global environment and there's a lot of contingency in the European environment. But if I were to identify four areas that I think need particular attention uh, in Ireland, they are public policy and our model of political economy, our external projection and coalition building, the future of the union itself, and what I call managing Europe from home. So firstly, public policy and political economy. Uh, Four of the six headline ambitions outlined by Ursula von der Leyen address key issues of public policy. A European Green Deal, an economy that works for people, a Europe fit for the digital age, and protecting the European way of life. So climate change. Ireland, according to Irish official institutions, is a climate laggard. Uh, and I think the Green Deal, she said a Green Deal within the first 100 days, 
But if you look at what our Environmental Protection Agency says, it says as recently as 2018, Ireland is not on the right long-term trajectory in meeting national 2050 targets in electricity generation, built environment and transport. And the Climate Change Advisory Council, again in its annual report, most recent annual report, said Ireland is completely off course in terms of achieving the 2020-2030 emission reductions targets. Without urgent action that leads to tangible and substantial reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, Ireland is unlikely to deliver on national, EU and international obligations. We're going to hear an awful lot more on the Green Deal. And it implies a domestic discussion, and not just a political discussion, but it clearly is something for all of us. Uh, what behavioural changes we're all willing to engage in, in order to deliver on those targets. Voting green isn't enough, that's the easy bit. Voting green if you've an SUV in your drive uh, is the problem. And so I think the green, how we address uh, the ecological challenges, the built environment, all of that, uh, it, these are matters of domestic policy, but we will come under pressure from Europe. Secondly, corporate tax. Any review of our political economy identifies the importance of, uh, of corporate tax to our model. We have the second lowest rate of corporate tax in the EU, and support for this policy is deeply embedded in our institutions, in the Department of Finance, in the IDA, other state agencies, and right across the political spectrum, except on the, on the left. It is a matter of national orthodoxy. Uh, and we are, according to Frank Barry, the most FDI-intensive economy for which employment data is available. We don't know a lot about um, how much, because there's a lot of phantom uh, FDI as well, but no doubt FDI plays a central role in our economy. And there's no doubt that the taxation of multinational companies, and particularly the tech giants, is now a major global issue for the G7 and on the EU agenda. We've had the experience of the Apple case, where the Commission ruled that that was state aid, and uh, Ireland was asked to secure 13 billion from Apple. Now, there was a debate in the Oireachtas after the Apple case in September 16. And when introducing the motion, Michael Noonan, then Minister for Finance, said, both the Commission's decision and the government's appeal represent landmark moments for Ireland's tax policy and our place in Europe. In other words, saying that this really matters to our membership. Support for the appeal of Apple was carried by 93 votes, 72% of the votes to 36, and right across the core traditional political spectrum, uh, entire support. Uh, but there is, I have noticed, an there is an increasing concern about uh, the designation of Ireland as a tax haven, by academic economists, the European Parliament, Oxfam. And so there's the, the Irish system, and one of the things, one of the great strengths of the Irish system of public policy is it reacts quickly. 
Already in September 16, there was an independent review of the Corporate Tax Code, the Coffee Report, and uh, recently Pascal O'Donoghue published the Corporate Tax Roadmap for September 18, in September 18. And that looks at, uh, it. basically, we've, uh, we've got rid of the most egregious elements of, of the corporate tax regime. But I'm going to quote for you what our Taoiseach said in the European Parliament in January 18. He said, my strong view is that national taxes that fund national budgets should be determined by national parliaments and governments. Basta. At the same time, Equally strong in my view is that corporations should pay their fair share of tax. And we've got to deliver on that. And that is a challenge to the orthodoxy with which we view this. Uh, the uh, Irish work closely with the OECD. The OECD has published, just October this year, has published its views on what should happen. And there's no doubt that there will be the commitment is that larger economies will have a, a greater capacity to tax the activities of multinationals on their territory, which will reduce the amount of corporate tax that will be paid in jurisdictions uh, like, uh, like Ireland. I would say, regardless of what happens, the Apple case, if the, in the appeal, if the Court of Justice finds for the Commission, then Irish tax policy in the future, while continuing to be based on unanimity, will be framed by a broader set of issues around fairness. Uh, and um, there's no way that we can face 10 years of aggressive tax planning by the large multinationals. The Commission has also said that if by the end of 2020 the OECD doesn't work, doesn't bear fruit, then they're going to relook at this again. And I know they're looking at the toolkit, they're wondering about the passerelle clauses in the Treaty of Lisbon. But I think regardless of what the EU does, I think as a country we should be capable, and I'm not advocating either breaching unanimity on this or changing the rate, but we have got to make sure that this jurisdiction does not facilitate aggressive tax planning by large multinational companies. And that's because in the world today, there has the tax base across the democratic world is under threat, and it really does matter. And also, I'm minded, we've got to be extremely careful uh, that we don't uh, see, because corporate tax, the take from corporate taxes has been has increased significantly in this country. We really can't afford another stamp duty. We really must make sure that we plan our public finances in a way that we don't end up where we once uh, where we once were. We've had the lesson. It was extremely painful, and we shouldn't go back there. Secondly, turning to extern external projection and coalition building. As I said earlier, Ireland loses the United Kingdom as a member state, and that is, uh, for Ireland, a very significant shift. But I am, and I think it really is, again, and it goes back to what I argue one of the great strengths of the Irish state is its adaptive capacity. Uh, I thought it was really important that the government published the Global Ireland, the Global Footprint to 2025 in 2018. And the intent is clear that Brexit will not diminish Ireland's commitment to 
and engagement with the international community. And the strategy is a good one. Use Ireland's soft power, uh, strengthen our digital communication and strengthen our diplomatic and our agency imprint across the world. And for a country as highly globalised as this, investing in presence and projection is not a luxury. It's not an add-on. We absolutely have to do it. So I think that was a very good signal. I also think bidding for a, a seat on the Security Council is a good thing. Now, we may not win. We did really well the last time. Uh, we may not win this time. But the process of looking for the seat means that you have to engage with every government across the world. So again, this intensity of engagement is really important, regardless, in my view, uh, of what happens. But also projection in the EU is no less important. And because of our geographical position, we have no automatic cluster of states that are, are we're not we're not part of the Baltics, we're not Nordics, we're not Benelux. We've never had the luxury, apart from our uh, that larger island beside us, we've never had the luxury of proximate neighbours in the EU. So what, what do we see happening there? What I see is, firstly, the emergence under uh, the Dutch of the Hansa League, or the Hanseatic League Mark II. Mark Rutte, very worried by Brexit, very worried about a weakening of what he considers the liberal states, the North European liberal trading states, has, uh, starting in April 17, he invited his Danish and Irish counterparts to Katzhus, his formal residence. And there's been, I see it in two areas, both in foreign affairs and then also in finance. Ireland is part of this emerging North European uh, group of states, starting with Ireland, going right across uh, into the Baltics. Now, Ireland needs to look care. Will the Hanseatic League, and it's a name, it's nothing like the Hanseatic League, but will it become a permanent feature of structured cooperation among these countries? Time will tell. And if it does, what does Ireland need to be conscious of? And I would say two things. Firstly, the Hansa League should not be seen as um, a proxy for German opposition to reform. Uh, and secondly, it should not be seen as the anti-Macron brigade. So it's got to be careful. It's got to be careful. It has to either it has to make a positive contribution to what's happening, and I would also caution against accentuating the divisions north-south. But that's wearing my Italian hat now. I have a tremendous fondness for uh, the Mediterranean states, but also East Central Europe. So Ireland does need structured cooperation, and I think the Hansa League offers potential benefits, but I would also make sure that as it evolves, it offers a positive vision of what the EU should become rather than, uh, rather than uh, preventing change at EU level. And then the future of the European Union itself. The EU is 
contested, it always has been. How it evolves over the next 10 years will depend on the tensions between the heterogeneity of the member states and what they can agree on, between the EU and the world beyond, and between public and private power, market power and public power. Uh, as I said, the EU is a more political animal now. It's, in my view, more robust and resilient. I think crises have toughened the EU in important senses. But I would say that one area that we need to pay attention to, given our experience as a programme country, is that we must pay attention to the resilience of the Eurozone. That it's unfinished. Now, of course, it's unfinished, but banking union has got to be, banking union has got to be secured. The European Central Bank did so much of the heavy lifting in the crisis, it needs help. And I am minded that Draghi, who, as he left office last week, said that the agreement on the budgetary instrument for convergence and competitiveness, the ICC, the EU loves acronyms, is a step in the right direction, but does not yet mean meet the necessary criteria of size and design. In other words, long term not even long term, but in the medium term, the euro area needs a fiscal capacity. And it won't be safe until uh, banking union is complete and there is something to help the member states through uh, the ups and downs of uh, the economic cycle. Then there's also uh, the question of uh, there is the question then of security. Our, the EU is strong on trade and it has used trade strategically over the last number of years. Brexit was a shock and it led the EU to hoover up uh, trade agreements across the world. But it has a much weaker strategic capacity in terms of security threats and security threats today are multiple, cyber, domestic and foreign terrorism, and the chronic instability of Europe's neighbourhood. Uh, it is something that I am reminded of every day I live in Italy, that the, the southern shores of the Mediterranean have become so unstable, Syria, Libya, but right across that region. The role of Iran, the uh, Saudi and Iranian uh, conflict. And the member states have understood how serious this is, and the Commission Security Task Force is doing what I call very serious, solid work under the radar. And it's interesting and poignant that Julian King, who probably will be the last uh, British Commissioner at the EU, has actually done a lot of very good work in the Commission on getting the agencies together. The refugee crisis in the summer of 15 was a major shock and one that really divided Europe and continues to divide. But it has led to a demand to strengthen Frontex and Frontex will be strengthened over the next five years. Uh, it is a very, very uh, difficult area because the demographic pressures on Africa and elsewhere mean that there will be many more people who want to live and work in Europe 
then European politics will tolerate. And that was the lesson, in my view, of 2015, that numbers matter. Chancellor Merkel did what she did. She opened the borders. She could not have done it a second year. Had she, then uh, she would not be Chancellor of Germany today. So the how to solve the deep, deep dilemmas of migration and the instability in the southern shores is a big, big challenge. And then, of course, there's defence. Now, I, at one stage, when I was still in UCD, always said to my third year essay students, please, no essays on Irish neutrality. I can't correct any more essays on Irish neutrality. Someone else, do it for someone else, but not me. Uh, because I think as a country, we have a very schizophrenic attitude towards European defence cooperation. On the one hand, we're very involved in PESCO, and I imagine we will be involved in the European Defence Action Plan. But on the other hand, we tie ourselves up with the triple lock. And I, for one, do not accept that uh, the deployment of Irish defence forces around the world should require a, a UN authorization. I think 100 years after the foundation of the state, we should trust both our government and our parliament in terms of the deployment of Irish troops. But we also need, just as we need on tax, we need a debate on security and defence. And here I'm going to quote from my colleague uh, Ben Tunra, who puts it much more elegantly than I could, when he says that in relation to European security, there is a distance, geographic, strategic and psychological, that generates negative Irish attitudes towards European security and defence, where cooperation is still seen as a cost, even a penalty of EU membership. It is a bill we reluctantly pay in return for markets and membership. And solidarity cuts all ways, and we can't ignore this debate. And I think it's much better. Irish politicians have tended to try to not have the debate, uh, not frighten the electorate. I think 100 years, almost 100 years after the foundation of the state, we should be capable in a mature democracy of having that debate. Now, very briefly to how we manage Europe from home. I've done a lot of work over the years on uh, EU public policy making and how countries organize themselves to be effective in Europe. I think when the uh, textbooks are written of negotiations, the Irish hand management of Brexit will be up there in terms of a really focused, disciplined and effective use of diplomatic and political capital. But that's because it was Brexit and because it mattered. Managing Europe from home more often than not involves mundane tracking of issues as they make their way from commission proposal to legislative outcome. And so we've also got to remember the mundane stuff and the non-Brexit stuff. And I would ask five questions. At least I think it was five. So firstly, how effective are our systems of co uh, coordination across the system, radiating from Taoiseach's? Foreign Affairs, the Cabinet, all of government and the agencies. Does Europe 
and I mean non-Brexit Europe, get sufficient political and official attention. Most issues are cross-cutting on the EU agenda today, and therefore we can't have silos. Secondly, are the home departments devoting sufficient attention and resources to EU business? Are they watching the change in the Commission uh, agenda and what's happening? Thirdly, are all our ministers and ministers of state attending the relevant council meetings? During the 2000s, our record of it, our ministerial record of attending council meetings declined very significantly. It was as if the tiger, the hubris of the tiger, we no longer needed to go. And that's really damaging because uh, the lack of a ministerial presence does impact on the projection of Ireland's interests and the building up of the necessary personal relationships that make this work. And so, again, uh, I think that any Taoiseach should have a tree-line whip to make sure that only in extremis is Ireland not uh, that there isn't an Irish minister at the table. Fourth, Irish officials in the institutions. Uh, we have the record of having had two secretary generals of the commission, outstanding secretary generals, David O'Sullivan and Catherine Day. But is there another crop coming up? Have we invested the time and the energy as there were more employment opportunities for young Irish graduates? Are we sending good people to Brussels, both as national experts and strategically positioning them in the institutions? And fifth, playing the Brussels political game. The EU is now a much more political animal, and so the membership of the major political groupings matter. Uh, contact with counterparts in the EPP, in the SND, uh, and in what was ALDE and now Renew Europe really matters. And I think one important development is the fact that Fianna Fáil has found a serious uh, group in the European Parliament because when it was in a lesser group, here was a governing party in Ireland not plugged into the politics at European level. I also am struck by the fact that we still elect independents uh, to, um, to the European Parliament, and they don't necessarily, uh, they individually may play a significant role, but they don't plug us into that deep structure of politics. So, to conclude, as Ireland approaches that 100 years since the foundation of the state, developments since 2016 have vindicated Ireland's choice for Europe in 1972. The contrast between the exercise of Irish sovereignty in the EU and Scotland's devolved authority within the United Kingdom could not be more sharply underlined. 62% of the Scottish electorate, Scottish voters, wanted to remain in the EU but they will have to leave with the rest of the United Kingdom. More significantly, Ireland as a small state has seen its essential interests protected and promoted by the EU. And we have learned that never again will a London government power Ireland against its will. So as it embarks on the second decade of statehood, Ireland does so as a member state of Europe's Union, the only available institution on the con in the continent at the moment for managing deep interdependence and managing deep interdependence in an unstable and disorderly world.
the EU is not over there. The union is not in Brussels. It is Ireland's union and Ireland's decisive choice has to be has been to, uh, to be a member state of that. Of course, as we move beyond Brexit and whether there is such a zone as beyond Brexit, uh, the relationship with the United Kingdom will continue to be extremely important because of the shared responsibility for Northern Ireland. And as I said already, we do confront, and in my view will confront over the next decade, major constitutional questions. Most of the things I spoke about tonight were domestic. In other words, yes, Europe is the essential arena, it is the scaffolding, it is the shelter, but a lot of these issues are issues of domestic public policy. And Ireland faces those and faces those with Europe in this emerging world of more disorder and less order. And let me end with this thought, and that is, how would Ireland's political leaders and the wider public respond to a demand for a quantum leap in European integration? Are we prepared for the kind of deliberation that that would require? What would it look like? Would a referendum on a quantum leap be won? Ireland has always, both policymakers and the wider public, we're always happy with the EU we have at any one time, despite all the changes, because there is psychologically the defense of the status quo. But perhaps we need to think more deeply about what kind of EU is needed to respond to the kind of world that Europe now faces. Thank you. Plenty to think about there. Thank you, Bridget. Uh, I'd now like to invite Dahio Kelly, member of the Academy, to respond. President, Excellencies, um, I think you could agree that that was absolutely superb. It was authoritative, it was wide ranging, and very comprehensive and grounded in political reality. Uh, Professor Laffin, over the years, as many people in this room know, has made a huge contribution to Ireland's place in Europe. And the wisdom that she's gained during those years uh, shone through that extraordinary discourse. Thank you very much. I'm not going to try and cover the same ground. I think I'll stick mostly to Northern Ireland and to the relationship with the United Kingdom. Uh, but there are two questions which I'd, I'd like to put to Professor Laffin, which she, she might respond to uh, when she comes back. The first is as regards China. I think Trump and the Americans have probably woken up a bit more quickly to the Chinese problem than have the Europeans. Um, the reality is that we're dealing with a state uh, which provides great state aids for its traders, merchants, and so on. 
secondly, it's a state which doesn't really recognize intellectual property and has used a great deal of property which it doesn't own to its own advantage. So you have a Europe here which is trying to operate with China, work with China on a, a level playing field where a level playing field doesn't at the moment exist. I think a lot of the American position in China uh, is driven by a recognition of exactly that point. And I'd just like to ask Professor Laffin, what does she think the chances are that as China becomes, and is certainly is at the moment, a very major power, and is likely to become a, an even bigger power, what are the chances that are that China might, at some stage, uh, be happy to play football on a more level field? And secondly, as regards America, we've seen with Trump, we've seen the emergence of, a, of a, an economic nationalism, uh, of America first. Is this likely to change when Trump eventually leaves the stage in a year or five years or whenever? Or is it, is it something that's likely to remain? Because if it does remain, it means that the, the in, and if China doesn't change, it means that the international trading uh, system in which we operate and in which we have operated really since the Second World War, that that international trading system will change and will have profound effects on the European Union. Uh, let me now just say a few little things about uh, the relationship uh, with, with, with the United Kingdom. Um, Professor Laffin has, has, has used both tonight and on other occasions uh, this notion of an EU scaffolding uh, within which uh, the Irish-British relationship changed. She's absolutely right. Uh, the joint membership of the European institutions enabled British and Irish ministers or British and Irish civil servants or British and Irish trade unionists or whatever. It enabled them to meet regularly, uh, to work together on propositions which had nothing to do with Northern Ireland. And over a period of time, very good working habits developed, a sense of respect, a sense of trust. And it was with, within those sort of relationships that business was done, which produced the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985, or the Downing Street Declaration in the early 90s, or the Good Friday Agreement uh, 20 years ago. It was we, we were both within the European Union, and people met frequently, met often, and frankly could resolve problems over a cup of coffee. Um, that's going to change. The 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 regular frequent meetings between British and Irish players is going to change, as I think Brexit is pretty much inevitable at this stage. Um, as they are on one side of the table and we are on the other side of the table. And you can, you can see those changes. Some of the public discourse in Britain about Ireland is horrendous. Now I think and agree with Professor Laffin that the Irish administration, and particularly the Taoiseach, uh, have been very wise in the way in which they've handled the relationship with London. The Taoiseach has said time after time after time that um, we had to keep talking, that we wouldn't close the door, 
and eventually he provided he, 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 he provided a way out for the British Prime Minister because I'm quite certain that in the period since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and Gove in particular took control of uh, the, the Brexit, the future, that they began to realise how horrendous a no-deal Brexit would be for the United Kingdom. And I think that explains Johnson's change of heart, and I think he was helped significantly and crucially in changing that view by uh, Leo Varadkar. So what should an Irish government be doing in the future to try and keep this relationship going? Well, firstly, when we get to the next round, when we get to the, to the negotiation of the actual deal, as distinct from the withdrawal deal, Ireland can be very helpful. We have many common interests, whether we are within or without uh, the European Union. So we can be helpful to the British, as indeed can many other member states be helpful to the British, in trying to find solutions which suit uh, all of us. But I think there's a, uh, there is a real need um, to somehow or other establish regular meetings between the British and Irish governments uh, to deal with Northern Ireland in the future. The problem in Northern Ireland has not gone away. The problem is very simple. That small space is shared by two groups of people, one who consider themselves British and the other who consider themselves Irish. It hasn't gone away. It's been managed by the two governments ever since the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985. Now, there was a great deal of devolution handed over to Northern Ireland as a result of the Good Friday Agreement, and the two governments moved away a little bit from the management. But the two governments, in my view, for at least another two generations, need to keep a very close eye on Northern Ireland and to provide a space um, between themselves to help the two communities in Northern Ireland uh, live together. The, the senior civil servants in London and in Dublin meet regularly uh, under the chairmanship of the two cabinet secretaries. In my view, that should continue and that should uh, be deepened more frequent, but primarily dealing with Northern Ireland. Um, I would like to see regular meetings of the British Prime Minister and the Taoiseach on some sort of an institutionalised basis. Now, there is a British-Irish Council at the moment, but I don't think it's quite fit for purpose in that sense. Um, but it could be changed. But there is a real need to try to ensure regular, comprehensive meetings between the administrations in London and the administration in Dublin to deal with Northern Ireland uh, in the coming years because we're going to lose the meetings that we used to have within the framework of the EU. Um, in Northern Ireland itself, it's frankly, it's a matter of great sadness that what has happened. Um, 
the capacity of the administration in Northern Ireland uh, to deal with Brexit collapsed with the collapse of the institutions. Um, Arlene Foster and Martin McGuinness had written to the British Prime Minister just after the referendum to say that <clears throat> Northern Ireland was a special place and required special arrangements. And as soon as the Mrs May lost her majority and had to rely on the DUP, that went out the door. And the DUP claimed that it had to be the same deal for Northern Ireland uh, as for the rest of the United Kingdom. And then once Johnson realized that he couldn't get that, he let the DUP do what they like. I've heard unionists say that the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985 was a political capitulation by the British government, and that what's happened with Boris Johnson is an economic capitulation by the British government. The unionist population in Northern Ireland is very unsettled and very insecure at the moment. And I think we here in Dublin, and particularly the government, need to reach out to the unionists. They've suffered a massive defeat. They're traumatized about their future. Um, I don't think, for example, that we should be supporting another referendum on reunification in Northern Ireland, which is something that only one political party wants, Sinn Féin. Um, I really do feel that in the coming times, we need to reach out and we need to say that, and to give him his due, Faradkar has said this, we need to say to the unionists, we respect your position, we respect your unionism, and we will support you. Because they are very, very unsettled. And it's Brexit which has caused it. It's not, a, it's not an Irish doing. And in Northern Ireland, as we know well, the majority voted uh, to remain. But their view has not been expressed in London. The only view heard in London over the last three years has been that of a minority in Northern Ireland. But at least one view was heard, whereas from Scotland, no view was heard. Um, so I think we're approaching, in terms of the relationship with London and in terms of the relationship with Northern Ireland, I think we're in very difficult times, and I don't think it's going to get easier for, for quite, quite a while. Um, I can read what I wrote here. I just I've two further questions which I'd like to put to uh, Professor Laffin. You've always been very eloquent about the need for this country to ensure that we send good people to Brussels. And we have sent good people to Brussels. But for quite a long while now, um, we're not sending as many as we should, and sometimes we're not sending people of the right caliber. How do you think the state, the administration, can encourage people on this island to go to work for the institutions? Because having people in the institutions can be of enormous benefit uh, in learning what's happening and in responding to 
changes. And secondly, may I ask, do you think that the assistance which the Commission has given to Northern Ireland in terms of the peace dividend, in terms of helping with the communities and so on in Northern Ireland, in terms of help on the border area, could there be a role for the Commission in helping the communities in Northern Ireland in a situation where Northern Ireland is actually outside the European Union. Thank you. So I'd like to ask Bridget now to come back to the microphone. Thanks, Dahi. Well, firstly, Dahi, thank you. Thank you very much. And I won't say much about Northern Ireland because you know so much more uh, than I do. Uh, on your question on China-US, uh, I think it's interesting that it, when it comes to China and the US, that it's the disruptive country is the creator of the system. So normally you would expect the challenging new power, growing power, to be the power that was taking the system on. But in fact, it's Trump's America is attacking the multilateral system that, as we know, the United States played such a huge role in establishing. On China and reciprocity, I think the union has toughened. It needed to. Uh, and I think the important concept is reciprocity, that if China is to benefit from its market access, then there also has to be uh, reciprocal access. That whole area of state aid is very difficult to unravel because the Chinese state itself is not something that we know uh, a lot about. And that probably goes to what needs to happen, the WTO. There, I did speak about the appellate body and the compliance system that's in serious trouble or will be uh, within a couple of weeks. But in a way, the WTO itself needs reform. And that is to, to handle the new emerging countries and the issues of level playing field, IP and, uh, and all of that. The Europeans have had, I think they have about 50 dialogues with the Chinese at the moment. And at one level, you might think these dialogues are all waffle. But in fact, they get down into quite a lot of specifics. And I think that slow, methodical working with the, with the Chinese probably will bear fruit. I also think it was interesting that uh, President Macron went to China and he brought with him representatives of other countries, but also the institutions. And I think we need to think of the EU in the next phase, not so much as the Brussels bit, but the collective bit. Because what really matters is the collective weight of Europe, however constructed. And you can't have Europe without its member states. So I think it's almost um, a conceptual shift. We need to think about how Europe collectively can be strategic and can use its combined weight. Uh, and I think facing the world we face, it has absolutely no choice. Or as someone said to me 30 years ago, Europe faces the choice of going down the tubes with lots of style. So no one wants to go down the tubes, and certainly not with style. So I think that this is that, that world out there. On, on, on the US, I would have thought 
that long term for the United States, Obama's soft containment of China was much more effective. Why do I say that? If you look at the Asian configuration, China is too big for Asia. And Asia will always want, the small Asian powers will want a countervailing force. And the United States has that role available to it. So I think strategically for the United States long term, abandoning TPP was not a good idea. I think they have an available balancing uh, and they could always be, and they are a Pacific power. So I, I think long term that will resurface. Of course, it does depend very much on how long the world will have to live with, uh, how long the world will have to live with, with Trump. Uh, also, I think that the United States gets away with economic nationalism much more effectively than other parts because it has a very large domestic market, a very large internal market. Um, it's not as exposed to global trade in quite the way that that uh, that Europe is. So the United States economic nationalism in a highly interdependent world doesn't get you to where you want to be. So in the long term, I would expect the US. But we don't know what damage Trump will do to the institutions of the US state, to the State Department, to American diplomacy across the world, um, to, American, to American power and presence. I think for Europe with China and the United States, what's crucial is not to be squeezed, not to find itself squeezed by the competition between the two great powers. And of course, if you're one country, it's a lot easier to deal with the world than when you're a hydra-headed beast like the, uh, like the EU. On sending good people to Brussels, uh, I think two things. I think that there should be within the Irish Civil Service uh, a commitment to rotating national experts in and out of Brussels. I think going to Brussels should not be seen as time away from your real job, as time away from the essential job. It should be seen as part of what is necessary for Ireland to handle EU membership. And then in terms of um, in terms of concour and getting people into the system, uh, Ireland will be an English speaking country and there won't be uh, as many British, well, there will be the British who are there now, but there won't be new recruit, recruits. So I think again, but it, 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 it is not an add-on and it's not a luxury. Uh, it is part of the essential being part of the system. Uh, and then on the role of the Commission vis-a-vis uh, -vis Northern Ireland, I, mean, I was always very struck in work we did way back in IBIS and UCD when we looked at Interreg and things like that. And the fundamental role um, Interreg played on the border. And what mattered was the Commission officials coming were neither British nor Irish. And they didn't see the re they didn't read the reality through any lens other than I'm a regional economist and this is how you work in a this is how regional economics works and I think they really made a difference in helping both the communities to sit around the table together to, to, to sort of forget and leave the identity stuff at the door 
Uh, and I think there is a commitment to the, to the continuation of the peace fund, although I'm not sure where that's at at the moment. And in that case, I would expect the Commission to continue to, to have a role, because they are a neutral. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of the EU as context, but also, I think, Hume and bringing people out to Brussels and to Strasbourg and all of that, it really did help alleviate some of the sharpness of the divide that you, uh, that you spoke about.